0: Well, we want to welcome you to Plum Creek Chapel tonight, and uh, thanks for coming out. Hey, Blake. Good to see you. Yeah. Um, We uh, are picking up with our continuation here of what is Calvinism and is it biblical? And so uh, really looking forward to our uh, discussion tonight. Let me mention a couple of quick announcements um, as we uh, get started here. Just want to make sure our live stream is working well. So uh, yesterday in our, sta- our regular weekly uh, appearance on the Christian Underground News Network, we talked about Bible translations, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that was uh, their topic that they asked uh, to talk about. And uh, so it was really good, good podcast, good kind of one-hour primer on you know, what to make of all the different you know, English uh, Bible translations. So I encourage you to check that out. Uh, it's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Not By Works Ministries. I want to continue to mention the uh, Elbert County Stands Up meeting at uh, uh, Majestic View Church. I had a good meeting on Monday with uh, the pastor there, and he's really excited about this. Then I met yesterday, I guess, was it yesterday? Yeah, no, uh, Monday also in the evening with a group uh, from Douglas County, uh faith-based group that's uh, kind of fighting for conservative causes and Uh, supporting conservative candidates in the political realm. And uh, they got connected to Not By Works through this Elbert County Stands Up. And they're excited about it. They're promoting it. So I hope we have a good turnout for that. I hope some of our folks from Plum Creek Chapel here in Sedalia will make the trip over uh, to Kiowa on that Sunday uh, for that uh, event. Uh, Let's see. Want to mention the book again? Uh, Still getting regular uh, feedback and comments on it. Uh, on Saturday, uh, Jan Markel had a conference uh, in, I don't remember where it was, Minneapolis-St. Yeah. Paul, I think. Yeah, and uh, she, at the at a break a point in the conference, it was live-streamed, but it was also, they had a crowd there. Uh, she uh, held up the book and said, this is our bestseller right now. Go out and get it from the, the lobby. I know, I thought, wow, that's great. So uh, uh, I can always tell when somebody out there has, you know, retweeted something of mine or linked to it or something because we start getting a lot of traffic, you know, people email me or call me or go to our store things like that. So uh, thankful for that. And uh, again, it's, it's not about selling books. It's about getting the message out. As I've said many times, since this came out March 21st, I think it's the most important book I've ever written very relevant for our day. And, uh, I can tell by the feedback that a lot of other people, um, Feel the same way that it's waking them up to issues they've never heard before never thought about before and something that i, I hope you'll continue to spread the word uh okay let's uh let's get into uh, our discussion tonight we're going to continue talking about toll depravity but speaking of not by works ministries we have the best constituents the best viewers the best listeners anywhere in the world uh, kind of like I've said many times, Plum Creek Chapel is the best church in the world. and I mean that. I every time I get introduced or talk people bring it up on uh, interviews, I always talk about how proud I am of our church and what a great church it is. Well, same thing's true of our listeners. And one of our listeners last week emailed me a really gracious email and pointed out a mistake that I made. I know that comes as a shock, (laughs) Gary, trying to try to hold back your your surprise that I would actually be mistaken in something, but it does happen. And uh, no, I, uh, as we were talking last week about, and it came up in in response to a question about Romans 7, and I mentioned how Calvinists take that view that that's Paul's pre-conversion life that he's describing before he got saved, because Calvinists don't believe you have a sin nature. And I mentioned that John MacArthur holds that view. Well, as it turns out, he does not. I actually knew that when I went back and looked at his commentary, which I have in my library. I had underlined his teaching on that. So I just, it's been so long since I looked up his view on that particular passage that I I just assumed mistakenly that he, like most Calvinists, held that view. He doesn't. It doesn't really change the point that I was making. It doesn't change the the uh, the prevailing Calvinist view, but John MacArthur, for the record, agrees with our understanding of Romans 7 that that's talking about Paul's Christian life. He just has a different nuance of it. He wouldn't use the same terminology about sin nature and things like that, but I really appreciate the uh, listener or viewer. I don't know if they heard it on a podcast or watched the video, uh, but they uh, pointed that out, and so thank you for that, and anytime you have a question like that, feel free to Uh, to let me know I you know I get so much of I don't script what I'm going to say so much of what I'm saying is kind of interactive especially on this Wednesday night study and uh, you know the older I get the not the, the less sharp my mind is you know Paul was talking about getting the gospel wrong which came out in 2007 and he's reading that book right now and I don't know that I could write a book like that right now it took a lot of work I would hole up for days on end and just work hours a day, and back then it was before digital technology, so you had, you know, you're pulling books off the shelf and writing citations, and so uh, anyway, uh, appreciate the, the viewer, I hope they're listening tonight, or will listen to the recording anyway, I appreciate you pointing that out, and I did tell them in the response email that, you know, after I looked it up, you know what, you're right, I apologize. All right, so uh, the five points of Calvinism, again, just to review, uh, are the acronym TULIP, uh, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Now, because this is somewhat interactive and we kind of go where the discussion leads us, we sometimes jump ahead a little bit topic-wise and we've touched on in passing a few of the, you know, the, the unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and uh, perseverance of the saints. But we're actually right now still focusing in on total depravity and all that, Calvinists teach uh, that uh, that means so speaking of getting the gospel wrong for this series as long as this series goes on for for the whole summer we are uh, making the getting the gospel wrong book which is an extensive treatment of Calvinism and its understanding of the gospel and its understanding of faith uh, available uh, with a discount code of gospel all caps g-o-s-p-e-l I've had several people take advantage of that those of you here at Plum Creek feel free to pick one up Uh, out at the resource table in the lobby. Uh, So Calvinists teach, of course, that total depravity, as we said, means total inability. To them, they equate depravity and inability. They're synonyms. So we have to understand what each other means when we're talking because, as is often the case in theology, opposing viewpoints talk past each other. Uh, For example, the biggest example of this is when we talk about faith. Calvinists say it's faith alone dispensational free grace guys say it's faith alone. And so everybody goes, well, so what's the problem? You agree? Hardly. (laughs) They mean something completely different by the term faith, and and I'm going to show you that as we get down uh, further along in this series. Uh, So the same thing is true of total depravity. You might say, well, I believe in total depravity. And the Calvinists will say, well, I believe in total depravity. And so then you go, well, let's hug and act like we are in total agreement. Well, no, we're not, because they don't define total depravity the same way I do, and they don't define it the same way I believe the Bible teaches it. So we're going through this to show you that here's what they mean by it, and here's what we believe the Bible teaches, and hopefully you know, you can draw your own conclusion. But Calvinists clearly teach that uh, an unregenerate person, meaning an unsaved person, is not capable of doing the one thing the Bible says you must do to have eternal life. 160 plus times. There's an appendix at the back of getting the gospel wrong that lists every one of them. Uh, It says you have to believe to be saved. If you want to have eternal life, you have to believe. Well, the Calvinists teach, because we are totally depraved, we are incapable of doing that. God must do that for us. So man is not able to respond to the grace of God. Man is not able to respond to the offer of salvation. We have no ability... Uh, to come to Christ. Man cannot choose to come to Christ. God has to overpower us in the Spirit, force us to turn to Christ, and uh, it's not through any volition of our own. It's the power of the Spirit uh, within us. So man does not have the ability, according to their view of total depravity, to respond to the gospel or come to Christ. So we looked at MacArthur who said, unredeemed sinners are totally depraved. And then notice the grammar here. That is... In the old days, they'd say, "To wit, uh, they are spiritually dead, unable to respond to or please God." So what? So they're totally depraved. But what does he mean by that? That we're unable to to respond to God. He says, "Because of human depravity, there is nothing a fallen, reprobate sinner, in a fallen, reprobate sinner, that is capable of responding in faith. You don't have the ability to do that." <clears throat> Uh, MacArthur again says, unredeemed sinners are incapable of understanding spiritual truth, incapable of genuine faith. Unbelieving humanity has no capacity to desire, understand, believe, or apply spiritual truth. And then they use the mantra that Charles Spurgeon first touted, dead men cannot believe, but the quickened can Uh, R.C. Sproul, dead men do not cooperate with grace unless regeneration takes place first. There is no possibility of faith. So you have to be regenerated first. Then, as we're going to see, they teach faith is the involuntary response. So you know what I mean by involuntary, right? You remember uh, sitting in a doctor's office on the table and he tests your knee with one of those little rubber hammers? And all of a sudden your knee jerks out. It's an involuntary reflex, right? You didn't plan to do it. You didn't intentionally do it. You didn't decide to do it. It just happened. That's what they mean by involuntary. Uh, God regenerates you. And the moment you are regenerated, then, without any volition or choice of your own, you express faith. So faith, to a Calvinist, is the involuntary response to regeneration. We believe and are demonstrating through this study that the Bible teaches faith is the instrumental cause of regeneration. It's a cause and effect. It's because of our faith that we become regenerated. We are born again, born of above, from above, born of the spirit, born into the family of God. New life begins the moment faith meets the gospel. Um, so uh, they don't believe that. Uh, MacArthur says, every aspect of salvation, including the sinner's faith, is done for us. So I'm not putting words in their mouth when I say, they believe God believes for you. Yes, they believe in faith, absolutely. Sola fide. It's one of the five solas of the Reformation. But they believe God does it all. So even faith is is what God does, not what we do. It's just an involuntary response. And so we talked about uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, how when uh, Paul says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The pronoun there is neuter, which means it cannot refer to faith. It's a grammatical impossibility. In, in Greek, pronouns must agree with their antecedent in gender and number. And uh, so... Clearly, whatever that is referring to is not faith, because both faith and grace are feminine. Uh, So it's clear that he's talking here about our salvation is the gift. Our faith is the means of receiving the gift. We receive the gift by faith. Uh, Even Calvin, as I mentioned, uh, didn't take it the way neo-Calvinists today have come to take it. Uh, Calvin wrote in uh, his uh, New Testament commentaries, he, Paul does not mean that faith is the gift of God but salvation is given us by God or we obtain it by the gift of God that's exactly right so uh, what does the Bible say so we we talked about uh, the fact that nowhere does the New Testament ever state that being dead spiritually means you can't believe nowhere that is a theological presupposition they have redefined the meaning of dead to mean can't believe. Therefore, in their minds, all they have to do to prove their point is to prove that we're dead. And so, again, as I mentioned last time, uh, you know, when I say to a Calvinist, "Well, show me where the Bible says we can't believe. They say, well, of course, it's right here in Ephesians 2.1. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. And I go, okay, you know now that you've answered a question I didn't ask, why don't you answer the question I asked? <laughs> I didn't ask you, where does the Bible say we're dead? I said, where does the Bible say we can't believe? Well, they can't, they can't bring it up. So, dead, as I mentioned last time, means separated. Dead always means separate. So, go back to the garden when God said to Adam and Eve, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely what? Die. So death did not exist before sin. Uh, uh, later, Paul would, under the inspiration of the Spirit, teach us explicitly the doctrinal point that wherefore by one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and what? Death by sin. Well, what happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned? They died, but what were the implications of that? What, what actually happened? Well, they became separated from a holy God. They didn't suddenly not, were were unable to communicate with God or talk to God or understand God. It just meant that they were separated. And only through uh, faith can they be reconciled or anyone now, because now we're all born dead. It passed down through the blood. Uh, You know, that's what Romans 5.12 tells us. We're all sinners because it's passed down. Every human being is born under the first Adam. That's why we needed a second Adam to come along who knew no sin, was not born through natural conception where the blood and the DNA would be tainted. He was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, therefore sinless and therefore the only perfect Lamb who could take the sins of the world upon His shoulders and pay our penalty. And He did. He rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and having paid the penalty... He bridges the gap of separation, uh, as we read about in Ephesians or Colossians 2.13, and makes it possible for us to no longer be dead or separated. So death just means separation. Physical death. What happens at physical death? A separation takes place, doesn't it? The body goes to the grave. Our soul goes to either heaven or hell. It's a separation, right? So we went through this last week. I won't take the time to go through it again. But we have to use biblical terms with biblical definitions. We cannot use biblical terms with man-made definitions that came along 1,600 years after Christ. You know, the, the, the Romans 5.12 and all of these passages that you see in this chart here uh, were in the Bible for 1,600 years till Calvin came along, or 1,500 years. So you know, it's a theological supposition to assume that death means inability uh, to believe. So, I want to continue giving you some more uh, passages of Scripture that kind of make this point. So, uh, Ephesians 1, uh, 13, uh, tells us that the gospel when believed is what quickens the heart of man and makes us alive again. Notice what it says. In Him, Jesus, you also trusted after you heard... The word of truth. So notice the order there. We talked about this Sunday in Acts chapter 10. By the way, I'm really looking forward to getting into Acts chapter 11. Uh, which we I won't be here this weekend. So it will be the next weekend. Uh, but uh, it's the continuation of the Peter and Cornelius story. But uh, did anybody notice what the, the verse on our marquee out front in the parking lot said when you pulled in? Anybody know... Do you? know? It says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. So before you can believe the gospel, you have to what? Hear the gospel. So no gospel, no salvation. That's what we talked about Sunday. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. But you've got to hear it first. And that's what Paul is elaborating on here. Same thing. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And then notice what he says. In Him also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. When were you sealed with the Holy Spirit? When you believed, (laughs) exactly. It does not say, having been sealed with the Holy Spirit, you believed. That's what it would have to say if Calvinists were accurate. But in their mind, uh, you, you know, the Holy Spirit regenerates you. You're born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus. He takes up residence and then forces you to believe. Nuh-uh. Not if Paul's telling the truth here. Having believed, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit a promise. Uh, so the gospel, when believed, is what quickens the heart of man and makes man alive. Total depravity means that every facet of man's nature and faculties, is corrupted by the sin nature. In other words, there's nothing within us that can, can commend us to a holy God. Nothing within us that can earn forgiveness. Nothing within us that can make us deserving of eternal life and keep us from you know punishment in hell. God in His grace draws all men to the Lord, and then when we hear and believe the gospel, at that moment, we become uh, born again. Uh, listen to what Jesus said in John five. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes, remember same order. You got to hear it to believe it, which is why we have the great commission. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Remember Jesus and has uh, says in John's gospel, I and my Father are one. To believe in me is to believe in God. Uh, but he who hears my word and believes in In Him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. When do we pass from death to life? According to Jesus? When we hear and believe. Not according to a Calvinist. A Calvinist teaches we pass from death to life. That's what regeneration is. Being reborn. You're dead. You get reborn. And then you believe. But do you see how... Both Paul and Jesus say just the opposite. He who hears my word and believes has then passed from death to life. Yeah?
1: Well, Debbie, you might have covered this in the first couple of sessions, but a Calvinist can believe and then they go to heaven. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. They believe in Jesus Christ. They're
0: in heaven with us. Right. So the comment is, a Calvinist who has believed the gospel is our brother and sister in Christ and they're in heaven with us. Absolutely. You don't have to disavow the incorrect Calvinist teaching to get to heaven. You just have to believe the gospel. So you're right. Go ahead. Okay.
1: So, um, do wrong. I mean, this sounds like a theological debate of a man-made, Definition of religion and as a believer, why do I
0: care? Yeah, so the question is why should we care about this? Oh, my goodness, uh, a thousand reasons. And we actually talked about those in the very first session. Why does this matter? But um, but it matters as we're going to go through this, you will see because what they say a person must do to be saved is actually contrary to the simple message of faith so in fact i actually just emailed a guy today uh, and had to uh, back out of a, a speaking opportunity because the church is calvinist and i said i i give the gospel clearly and urgently almost every time i speak and i don't want to do anything that would cause an offense in your church because i don't believe as you do that you must surrender repent of your sins Turn from all your sins. Make Jesus Lord. Put Him on the throne of your life. Pledge to follow Him. Make a decision to follow Him. I don't believe you have to do all that to be saved. As we're going to find out, they absolutely believe that. So a common name for the view of salvation that is represented by the Calvinist theological scheme is called Lordship Salvation. So if you, a lot of people are familiar with Lordship Salvation, but they didn't realize that it's actually a, a restatement of Calvinism. So it absolutely matters. But back to your first comment, I want to be be clear because I've talked about this a lot already in here. I'm not suggesting for a second that someone who is teaching the false view of the gospel that Calvinists teach is in and of themselves not saved because I don't know that. In fact, if I had to guess, I would assume that people say like John MacArthur who have studied the word as long as they have and been in, in the word as much as they have you have to believe that it's somewhere along the line they understood the pure and simple childlike gospel and believed it. So I, I fully expect th- him, that he's saved. But what I can tell you on the authority of Scripture is that what he's now teaching people must do to be saved will not get anybody saved. If all a, a, a lost person has ever believed, if, if, we, if we had a way to know this, which of course we don't, but let's just say we did, if all a lost person has ever believed in their attempt to have eternal life is what Calvinists say you must do to have eternal life, they're not saved. And that's not a theological uh, semantics. That's God's Word. If there's And I talked about this Sunday. You guys were here. You were here Sunday, right? So Sunday, and those of you that are watching online or maybe uh, watching the recording later, I encourage you to go back and watch the message from this past Sunday called What is the Gospel? Because, you know, if there's one thing the Bible's clear about, it's what is the gospel. And it's also crystal clear that you have to believe the gospel to be saved. So if you're believing something other than the gospel, you're not saved. Uh, Now, it's possible to believe the saving message of the gospel, be saved, and then in your journey be led astray by a false teacher, a false doctrine. And so there are undoubtedly people today all over the world who have embraced a false teaching about the gospel, But it doesn't unsave them, it doesn't change what Jesus did for them the moment they believed. So you don't, the Bible never says you have to believe the gospel and keep on believing. Because if that were the case, first of all, that's a direct contrast to what Jesus says. But secondly, how would anyone ever know we're saved? We'd have to wait till we die, right? So you don't have to believe the gospel and then keep on believing it every so often. You know, once faith meets the gospel in that punctiliar moment in time, in that instant, you're reborn. And your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But look, the devil is a great deceiver. He's a liar. He's constantly propagating false teaching. That's why the church is told repeatedly in the pastoral epistles to guard your doctrine. You don't want to let somebody come in that's preaching a false gospel. Uh, And people can be led astray. I mentioned last week, uh, John the Baptist died in in a lonely prison cell wondering if Jesus is the Son of God. But he's in heaven today. Uh, People often abandon the faith, but Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2.13 that even if we're faithless and completely abandon the faith, God is faithful and He will not deny, deny His own children. So uh, it really does matter um, whether or not someone teaching a false doctrine is themselves saved is really a beside the point. What ma- all we can do is evaluate people based on what they're saying. And again and again, the New Testament epistles, challenge us to watch and guard. And for example, Romans 16 says, mark those who are teaching false doctrine and avoid them. So it, it absolutely matters when it comes to the gospel. Now, I'm not going to separate and split hairs over someone who, you know, has minor differences with, on certain issues. You know, maybe they think you should take communion every month or every week or every quarter. Okay, those are areas where we can, you know, we can still fellowship where that's not a fundamental issue. Or if someone, you know, has a different view on certain ministries of the Holy Spirit. Okay, maybe they think, you know, certain gifts are still very much active today. Where I might say, well, they're certainly available, but they're certainly not in vogue. All right, I, that's okay. We we can work together and resolve to come to some unity in Scripture as we study it. But if you're wrong on the gospel, that's what matters most. And so we, we absolutely have a biblical duty to call them out and clarify. Um, But you are correct and I'm I'm glad that you brought it up because I want to make sure we repeat this often. You know, because I I get critical uh, feedback from people that will say, oh, so you think John MacArthur's going to hell? And I'm thinking, where did I ever say that? I've never said that in 33 years, (laughs) nor would I. So, uh, but I think that what he's teaching is not going to lead anybody to heaven, because I think it's false. So good good question. Uh, yeah?
1: So, I, <clears throat> back to your, I heard your progression that sinful man is involved by the Holy Spirit, and then he uses his free will to choose to accept Christ. No. Okay. How?
0: No. 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 Sinful man uses his free will to accept Christ by faith as the only one who can forgive their sin and give them eternal life. Then he's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Where is the drawing curve? Well, that, that's what we were just about to talk to, uh, talk about. Uh, the Holy Spirit is drawing all men to himself, right? At what point? Birth? Uh, Before creation? Uh, well, the implication here is people that can understand the gospel. You can't believe something you don't understand. And as we've already demonstrated, you must hear and understand the gospel before you can believe it. So he's drawing all people who have the ability to hear and understand. Uh, But notice what Jesus said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to himself. Now, are all men saved? No. All men are drawn, but not all men are saved. Who's saved? The people who believe. So absolutely, uh, we got to make sure we get the order right there. It's all people are drawn. Some people reject the gospel. Some people believe the gospel. Those that believe the gospel in that instant are indwelt permanently by the Holy Spirit, and uh, and then several other things uh, uh, happen simultaneously with that at the moment uh, that are invisible. Right. Uh, for example, Second Corinthians five seventeen says, "If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation." can't tell you how many times Calvinists will take that verse out of context and say, because remember, as we haven't gotten there yet, but once again, we, we're sort of touching on these issues as they come up in the conversation, but the P in Calvinism is that if you're really a Christian, you're going to live like it. And if you're not living like it, you're not a Christian. So remember, an Arminian says you've got to do good works to become saved. A Calvinist says you've got to do good works or you're not saved. Both of them make works the determining factor. It's just Calvinism puts it on the back end. Arminianism puts it right up front. That's why in the book that you're reading right now, I make the comment that Calvinism and Arminianism both pave the road back to Roman Catholicism. Uh, Calvinists do it more subtly.
1: So when does man have free will?
0: From the moment he was created. God told Adam and Eve, don't eat from that tree. He did not tell them, you don't have a choice. I agree that Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but then sin entered the picture. Correct. Um, I'm having a difficult time uh, in my mind. Why a, a logical, rational human being would reject the possibility of eternal paradise and salvation. So the
0: comment is... Uh, He agrees Adam and Eve had uh, free will, but he's having a hard time accepting the fact that a rational, normal human being would reject the free gift of eternal life. That's my book, Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell and The One Reason No One Ever Has To that came out last year. I give ten common reasons that people would reject the greatest gift known to man, eternal life. Why in the world would someone reject that? But the heart of man is desperately wicked. I give... 10 things that I've experienced in there it could be pride it could be uh, covetous or uh, it could be uh, they think they're too bad Christ could never save someone like me they have had a bitter tragedy that makes them bitter toward God they don't want to hear God they close their ears to God but absolutely uh, I don't understand what I don't understand is why it makes sense that Adam and Eve had free will before the fall but suddenly after the fall they don't what what biblically? What was the consequence of the fall? We sin. just talked. Well, no, sin was the fall, but what was the consequence? Death, which is right. So nothing changed. They still had free will. It's it's in, free will is part and parcel to the image of God and man. It's it's the way we were created. It's what separates us from every other created thing. So that's why you know sometimes you'll hear people talk about how human beings are acting like animals. Well, what they're what they're really saying is you know, animals they don't have free will. You know. Animals can't get together and say, Okay, we're gonna take over the world. You know, I mean they're just doing their thing, you know. Feed our dogs. An <laughs> What's it? will they feed our dogs?
1: You want to meet our dogs. Oh, you want to meet our
0: dogs. Well, I'm more I'm more worried about the cats than the dogs. <laughs> but uh but uh you know, the free will is part and parcel to the Imago Day. It's what makes us unique. And we use that free will to rebel against God. And then God created the remedy. He, 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 he got us out of our own predicament. Certainly didn't have to, but that's where His love, grace, and mercy coalesce with His justice, righteousness, and holiness. And, you know, in His holiness, we're going to hell. And he, God doesn't send anybody to hell. We chose to go there. He warned us about it. Don't eat the apple or your, your curtains. We took a big bite and then God says, okay, I'm loving God. I'm going to provide a solution, but I'm not going to force it on you.
1: So you're saying that the Calvinists say that the unregenerated man has no ability to choose God until he's drawn. And once he's drawn, then he has the ability. That's what you're saying they teach. No. to, To choose.
0: No. So I'm going to repeat what you said just to make sure that it's uh, picked up on the recording I'm hung so up on the order here. yeah so you said now we've got a he said he said going <laughs> on but I'm, I want to so, try to communicate this in a way that people can benefit from uh, from the discussion so your comment was Calvinists believe that man has no ability to choose until after he's drawn no Calvinists do not, Calvinists believe man has no ability to choose until after he's regenerated, he's already saved, then, and, and even then he doesn't choose, then the faith is a gift that is an involuntary response, so faith basically is sort of a way of identifying the elect, okay, according to the Calvinist scheme. So remember, and I, again, I, I, I've already shown this, but I want to make sure... Uh, Here's R.C. Here's Sproul. Dead men do not cooperate with grace unless regeneration takes place first. There is no possibility of faith. MacArthur. Every aspect of salvation, including the sinner's faith, is done for us. So, that's why, when you go back to Jesus' statement about drawing all men to Himself, um, they believe the drawing is dragging. That when the, he says all men, he really means all elect. And the Spirit of God is forcing all of the elect, whether they like it or not, to be saved. We believe all men means all men. right? Not all elect, but all men.
1: Drawing and regeneration are not the same. Thing.
0: No, drawing and regeneration are most decidedly not the same thing. And it should be clear from Jesus' words because... I, I I feel certain we all agree that not all men are saved. 7.5 billion people in the world are some of them not saved. Of course, everybody should nod. Okay, I'm not trying to force you to agree with me, but I think that's pretty rudimentary. So, if that's the case, then drawing cannot mean regeneration, because regeneration is a synonym for when you're regenerated, you are born again, you are part of the family of God. So, drawing cannot be regeneration because it, all men are not saved. And plus, drawing doesn't mean that anyway. It's, it's Drawing is presenting the gospel. Jesus said in the upper room, not long after this, uh, that uh, uh, the Spirit of God will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But just because the Spirit of God is going throughout the world convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment doesn't automatically mean everybody's going to respond in faith to it. Yeah. yeah? just to clarify, by regeneration you mean born. Born Sure. Okay. Yeah, so let's define terms. Thank I you for that.
1: drawing is born again and not
0: synonymous. Right, just what I just said. Uh, drawing and regeneration are not the same thing. Um, drawing uh, is encouraging people to receive the gift. Once you've received it, in that instant you are regenerated. So go, let's go to John chapter 3. That's where the term first comes up. Um, everybody knows... Uh, John three sixteen, or most people do, um, but they forget that Jesus' teaching here comes in the context of his nighttime visit with Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin, um, who also was wealthy, by the way. And so let's just walk walk through this. Um, I hope you don't mind. You know, we will eventually get through total depravity. I mean. We won't eliminate total depravity until we get to heaven, but we will get through the subject of total depravity that we're talking about here.
1: Obviously, it's total. It's
0: total? Yeah, depravity. There's a lot of it. Yeah, there is a lot of it. And it's getting worse and worse, too. Um, So John 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, uh, literally means conqueror of the people, uh, a ruler of the Jews, meaning he was part of the Sanhedrin, that Jewish council. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So remember, John's gospel, he's, he's recording selected events from the life and ministry of Christ to, to present signs that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of kings, and all of that. And so, here John is giving us, under the inspiration of the Spirit, an introduction to Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, and he tells us that uh, this man, Nicodemus, says to Jesus, no one can do what you're doing, unless, you know, unless he was from God, or God is with him. It's precisely what these miracles were for. The greatest miracle in uh, Jesus' ministry, and in John's Gospel, and all the Gospels for that matter, was what? The resurrection, right? That's what it all led up to. Starts with turning water into wine, but every step of the way, he's saying essentially, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, I can save you, trust in me. John the Baptist announced at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here we just have an example of a man who saw these signs and clearly said, hey, this guy, kind of guy I want to talk to. But he comes to him by night because He's supposed to know everything. He's a leading Jew, a great scholar, right? So Jesus answered and said unto him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, let's stop there for a second because we've all heard the phrase born again, right? Uh, It was popularized in the 70s by Billy Graham, and he wrote a book called Born Again, and it became sort of a cultural way of describing people who are believers right so the most common biblical term is believers when we get to acts chapter 11 in a couple weeks after i get back uh, we're going to talk about what is a christian because it's in acts chapter 11 the first time the word christian ever comes up in the bible and it's only used three times in the whole new testament Uh, but born again is this is the first time it's used and of course remember As I talked about yesterday on the podcast, the Bible was not written in English, so it was written in Greek, and the word uh, born again, the word again there, it's anothen, it literally means from above, and as a matter of fact, every other time except right here in John 3 that the word is used in the New Testament, it's translated from above, for example, uh, when the veil in the temple was rent in two on the, when Christ died, the Bible tells us it was rent onathan from top to bottom, from above to below, ripped, symbolizing the new and living way opened up for us. Uh, James, in James chapter 1, yeah, chapter 1 says, uh, every good and perfect gift is where? From what? Onathan above. Always means above. But what happened was when the King James translators translated John 3, because of the context and the dialogue that we're going to read here in a second between Nicodemus and Jesus, where Nicodemus had never heard of the heavenly birth, the birth from above, he had only heard of the earthly birth. He he only knew of one birth. And so he said, how can I go back into my mother's womb again? In fact, that's the very next verse. Let's read it. Jesus says, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? How, how can I enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born? I don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus answered, and most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, physical birth, you know, uh, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, as you've heard me say, if you've listened to our teaching for very long, if you're born once you're going to die twice. You're going to die physically and you'll die eternally in hell. But if you're born twice, once of the mother's womb and once of the spirit, you only have to die once. And by the way, a certain group may not even have to die once if the rapture happens, which is what I'm counting on. Um, But Nicodemus had never heard about this rebirth. And Jesus goes on, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born from above. By the way, if you go on down in verse uh, 12, it becomes patently clear, even if you didn't know the Greek word above meant, or or, again, as it's translated here, meant above. In in verse 12, Jesus says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is contrasting with Nicodemus, who is being drawn and coming to Him, and he's, he's, uh, he's contrasting the heavenly birth with the earthly birth. He's contrasting our physical lives, which are dead in trespasses and sin, with the spiritual rebirth, or regeneration is the biblical uh, term. Uh, Titus 3.5, which is the theme verse for our ministry, has been for 23 years, not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to His mercy, He saved us, which is usually the part that I quote on all of our marketing materials. But that same verse goes on to say, through the washing of the regeneration of the Spirit. So it's a biblical uh, term, meaning made alive in the Spirit. Um, So Nicodemus answered, how can these things be? And then Jesus says in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel? Note the definite article, meaning this guy was a preeminent teacher, which is why he came to Jesus by night. I mean, he, you know, this is the, he was the big, big wig. And you don't know these things? Because certainly, justification by faith was taught in the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. Father Abraham himself was justified by faith. These people should have known that. That's what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, which Matthew or John doesn't include in his account, but the other three Gospels do. And he explains that you, know, you after all these years, you've missed the, the point. It's not about keeping the law. It's about being perfect. And the only way to be perfect is by faith. So then Jesus goes on. If I told you heavenly things or things you don't believe, how are you going to believe I tell you heavenly things? Um, and then he says, the famous verse, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then he says that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have, everlasting, have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He's telling Nicodemus precisely what he has to do to experience the second birth. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now again, Calvinists, every time they see the word world here, they, they read world of the elect. But that's not the implication whatsoever. Jesus is speaking quite broadly, of heaven and earth and everything on earth, the world, and that God sent His Son from the heaven to the earth, not to the elect, not to a subset of the earth, but to the whole earth. I mean, there's nothing in the context that, apart from a Calvinist presupposition that came along just a few centuries ago, that would lead someone astray from understanding precisely what this meant. And Nicodemus clearly understood it, and he gets uh, saved, by the way, later on we find out. Um, so, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned. So, when, when does the gavel come down not guilty? When you believe. Not when you're elect or, you know, when you believe. Uh, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. I mean, it couldn't be more clear that faith is the cause of salvation. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. This goes to what Paul was commenting on a second ago. Why would why would people not believe? Well, it's it's just our nature. You know, we have we're deceived. But Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 4 that the devil is blinding men's hearts to the gospel. You're not blinding them to the Holy Spirit so that he can't regenerate them because they're not elect blinding them to the gospel so that they can't believe and be regenerated. Um, and uh, so anyway, that's, that's you know, John 3, chapter 3 goes on, but that's the gist of it. So I don't know how we got off on that, but uh, uh, Jesus said, what, what's that? So somebody want to? Put me back on the track here. No, uh, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Clearly, drawing doesn't mean saving or regenerating or whatever synonym you were justifying because all men are drawn, but not all men are saved. Um, again, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. All men. So the fact is, man can respond to God's grace and come to Christ, and God calls all mankind to do so. Why would God call all mankind to do something that it's not possible to do? Well, Calvinist answer to that is, that's the reason we don't think he's calling all mankind. He's only calling the elect. And so they have to, every time these passages at their plain, normal, face value sense indicate he's calling the world, they have to say, oh, well, that just means the world of the elect, right? Or when we get to limited atonement, the third point of Calvinism, where they believe Christ only died for the elect, because remember, who does the saving? It's not. It's it's God does the saving, but how does He do it? Not because we believe or receive the gift. God just indiscriminately does it. Remember, it's the pick and save. You know, he saves the ones that He that He will. And then, uh, you know, because that's the case, Christ's death only is, was for the elect. Why would Christ die for people that, that were going to hell, they say. And we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but they very passionately teach that it is the atoning work of Christ itself that actually saves you. Remember, faith isn't the issue. God's the issue. God saves the elect. How does He do it? Through the atoning work. We don't believe the atoning, atonement of Christ saves you. The atonement of Christ makes it possible for you to be saved, right? See the difference? because if the atonement saved you everybody would be saved the atonement is sufficient for all but efficient only for those who believe you got to cash the check before you get the deposit so he's offering it whosoever will let him come and he paid the penalty paid your price but if you choose not to accept that price you're going to pay your own price for all of eternity that's the message of the gospel yeah is there, so do you- Absolutely, do Calvinists believe there's a limited number of elect? Absolutely. Does that know? Well, they don't know. So, but but you bring up a good point, point. Uh, and my uh, good friend and mentor, the late uh, Bob Lightner, uh, he was affectionately called Lightning Bob. Uh, I had him as a professor 30 years ago at Dallas Seminary, and then I had him again. I guess the Lord felt like I didn't learn the first time, but I had him again in my PhD studies. But uh, he has pointed out that there's no place in the entire Bible where the elect and non-elect are distinguished in their unregenerate state. No place. Every time it talks about the elect individually, of course a lot of times the elect means Israel, the national election of the nation of Israel, but sometimes it refers to individual elects. It's talking about people who have already been saved, right? So they don't have an answer to that question, but they absolutely believe that not everyone is elect. So, uh, but again, we see this universal call. Uh, Revelation 22:17. I, I cite this often. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears, there's the hearing before the believing again, right? Let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him drink the water of life freely. Whoever what? desires the Calvinists teach you don't have a desire you got to get saved first and then involuntarily for the first time you can believe the gospel that's not the testimony of scripture from cover to cover Um, as an example consider Adam Adam was spiritually dead after he and Eve sinned yet he could still respond to God right the Lord God called Adam and said to him where are you so he said I heard your voice in the garden. Wait a minute. I thought dead people couldn't hear the voice of God. I mean, again, it's just not, it doesn't pass the biblical test. Now, again, I don't mean to speak so strongly, and I don't encourage you to just take my word for it. I mean, these are not stupid people and stupid scholars who hold this view. They're men and women of God who've studied this, and but they're just wrong. I'm sorry. And I hope that as you study this issue, you'll see uh, the same conclusion. Uh, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Now, grammatically, we have the same thing in English. This is called an appositional statement. Not oppositional statement. <laughs> appositional with an A. And it, this, the second phrase is in apposition to the first. It just means it's restating it another way. So how do we receive him? By believing in his name. Read it again. But as many as received him, and then you take out that parenthetical in the minute, in the middle, as many as received him, that is, to those who believe in his name. So again, John is just stating the same thing that Scripture says again and again, that the manner by which we receive the gift is by faith. So total depravity to a Calvinist means total inability. Um, Calvinists insist that the non elect are completely incapable of thinking. It's as if their minds are mush. But we've already shown how an unbeliever can, in fact, understand Scripture. He just may not believe it. Like some of you, I, I wonder the same thing. It's what inspired me to write Top Ten Reasons. I just, it's, I'm, I'm just dumbfounded that having presented the predicament, and, and by the way, you almost never get pushback on that. I, very seldom when I'm sharing the gospel with someone, either individually or in a group, Does someone stand up and say, whoa, 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 back up to that first point. We're all sinners? Wait a minute, I'm not a sinner. I've never sinned. I mean, nobody, almost nobody. I have had it happen, but it was a new ager and it was a different situation, but it's rare. So, you know, everybody certainly accepts their predicament. And then when you give them the solution, it's just befuddling to me that people won't receive the free gift. Um. But the the fallen human mind can't understand God's truth. Uh, There's clearly a difference between comprehending something and accepting or welcoming or believing it to be true. Even Paul in that famous chapter 1, which Calvinists love to point out this chapter, but there's a hidden little gem in there that to me speaks contrary to what some of their theology is. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Seems to me you have to understand the truth to suppress it in unrighteousness. But notice what he says: because what may be known of God is manifest in them. I thought nothing could be known of God if you're unregenerate. You're spiritually dead. You can't. You have no ability to respond to God. At all. no, they, they can know about God. Uh, man, fallen men can perceive the truth. He just won't embrace it. Now, uh, 1 Corinthians two is an interesting passage i've actually written a whole article on this Um, anybody that wants to read a more technical article shoot me an email and i'll send it to you but paul says the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of god calvinists especially you know lay people often cite this as a proof text to say see an unbeliever an unregenerate person they can't receive the things of the spirit of god god has to regenerate them first be careful that's not what this verse is saying the word for receive here uh, in the original language means to welcome or embrace. It's the word decamai. There are two words for receive, decamai and lambano, both in our English Bibles translated receive. Lambano is, says nothing about one's attitude. It just means to take possession of. If you look up lambano in a Greek lexicon, Greek, it just means take possession of. So if I were to hand you know, you this, barb this water, and you take it, you have lombanoed. <laughs> you, have, you have taken possession of. You've received it in that sense. It went from being mine to yours, right? Lombano. By the way, lombano is the word that's used, let me see if I can get back to it, in John, yeah, right here, John 1, 12. Lombano. To as many as have taken possession of him by believing in him. He's now theirs, right? We, Jesus is ours. He takes a presence. You know, we, we are the children of God. But that's not the word that's used here. Same word in English, but totally different word in Greek. It's the word "decamai," and it means to welcome or embrace. So the fact is, fallen man can comprehend God's truth. He just does not embrace it because Satan is blinding man's heart to its truthfulness. And there's an interesting passage unrelated to this subject necessarily, but it it just drives home the point about Lambano versus decamai. But in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul uses both words. And this is the New King James that you see on the screen here. But he says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, lombano, you took possession of it. You accepted it as true. To as many as received him, he gives the right to become the children of God, to receive it. You took possession of it, right? Uh, but we thank God because when you received it, you not only received it, but you welcomed it. And here the New King James translates it welcomed, even though it's frequently translated received. But because both Lombano and Dekemeyer are using the same verse, it would be a little bit confusing uh, if, if he, they didn't differentiate it in English. So otherwise he would say, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you received it not as the word of men. You know, and he wouldn't see the nuance. But he's saying, you received it, which is all it takes. When faith meets the right object and you believe it, you're saved. You don't have to really, really believe it or really, 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 really believe it or believe it with tears or believe it with emotion. It's not how you believe that saves you. It's what you believe. When you've taken possession of it by faith, it's yours. But here he's describing uh, that they also welcomed it, that is, decamai, embraced it as uh, the word of men, not as the word of men, but as in truth the word of God, which effectively works in you who believe. So they were excited about it. Uh, Again, 2 Corinthians 4 4 tells us uh, that the devil is blinding men's hearts to the gospel. Uh, You know, those who do not believe. So that's what the devil wants to do. He wants to keep the lost lost and the saved defeated. So once you get saved, he can't do anything about that. Even though some false teachers suggest you can lose your salvation. Or Calvinists teach you can't lose it, but you can disprove it. You can think you're saved for 60 years, But if down the road somewhere you have a terrible tragedy or somehow you get away from the Lord, you get out of his word, you're not fellowshipping with a Bible teaching church, and somehow, like John the Baptist, for example, you decide to turn your back on God, Calvinists would say that that proves you were never saved to begin with. Because P in TULIP, you must persevere till you die. If you don't persevere, you're not saved. Yeah.
1: Yes, and, uh, yeah. You can hear, if you listen to these Calvinist teachers like John McArthur, John Piper, Bill, John Piper has come out saying that, well, he's not sure he's going to first do He's not sure that he's saved. John MacArthur has been asked when he's pressed, Well, he's 98% sure that he's saved. Right.
0: Yeah, so, so let me, before, because it's, uh, to our listeners, it sounds like silence, so I want to mm-hmm. jump in here and repeat it. So, yeah, uh, Blake is pointing out that there really is a crisis right now, Uh, Because uh, people are doubting their salvation because men like Piper and MacArthur and others are teaching that if you're not persevering, you're not really saved. And so perseverance by its very nature is subjective, right? How do I know if I'm persevering? I mean, you know, uh, how many of you... uh, Don't raise your hand yet. Let me get the question out. How many of you today sometime. It's already toward the end of the day. Not long we'll be going to bed, so it's a full day, right? How many of you today sinned at least once in thought, word, or deed? Raise your hand. Okay, good. We're not going to take names. How many of you sinned yesterday at least once in thought, word, or deed? Wow. How many of you sinned on Monday in thought, word, or deed? Okay. Doesn't sound like to me you're persevering.
1: Plan on tomorrow, too.
0: Yeah. I mean, absolutely. So, that, so, I mean, to me, you could argue we're not persevering, right? And indeed, the spiritual journey sometimes is two steps forward, three steps back. That's why the Bible talks about backslidden or, you know, carnal Christians. Of course, as I mentioned, and I am confident of this, Calvinists don't take the carnality in 1 Corinthians 3, MacArthur especially, as a believer, the natural and carnal are the same person. They only have two categories in First Corinthians three: unbeliever and believer. We see three. Spiritual is the believer. The carnal is the believer who's living in carnality. The natural is the unsaved, who's never believed. But uh, so it's just it's subjective. And as I talked about last week, that's what bothers those of us coming from a traditional dispensational free grace perspective: is the impossibility of assurance when it's based on subjective criteria. Um, how can you really ever know? So, But you're right, Blake. They're, they're, uh, you know, are, uh, uh, they're coming out now and admitting that if they're going to be consistent intellectually with what they're teaching, they're starting to recognize, well, I really can only be 98% sure that I'm saved because hypothetically I might, toward the end of my life or on my deathbed or something, uh, depart from the faith which in their view would prove that they're not saved. So that's, you know, they're, they're, there's a big awakening to that. And, you know, um, Calvinists have the upper hand, okay? they've uh, That's why I call it the gathering cloud. I have a, a DVD series that I did uh, called Reformed Theology, the Gospel, and the Nature of Saving Faith. And in there I call it the gathering cloud. Um, you know, they're out front, they're capturing... Uh, our young college students on college campuses with a group called uh, RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. It's similar to Campus Crusade for Christ or Baptist Student Union or Fellowship of Christian Athletes. one of those college groups, but the, it's all teaching them Calvinism. Uh, they have popular groups and popular teachers uh, like a T4G, Together for the Gospel, um, and others, uh, Piper's groups. And so it's an appealing organization. Uh, concept to young Christian men and women, and I believe most of them are Christian, but they're latching on to this intellectualism of, of Calvinism, and 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 once they've kind of been hooked, they, they, you just can't teach them anything. And, and I don't say that with too broad of a brush, I mean, there are always exceptions, but I've been to these conferences and I've had multiple conversations, so I'm blue in the face at the table at Desiring God, for example. with. 15 millennials there drilling me, you know, as the lone, you know, non-Calvinist in the room. And uh, they just, they're just just not willing to be taught. Uh, And I think some of it comes down to pride because, again, as we've said, our view is we are comfortable with the biblical tension between sovereignty and free will. We don't have to figure it out. But to a Calvinist, that's a cop-out. I've had them tell me that before. I'm giving up too easily. God wants us to figure everything out. And God wants us to... It has to make sense. God's Word has to make sense. And you're, uh, you're, you're letting it not make sense, they, they say. And so to them, the only way you can make it make sense is to slip to one side or the other of this uh, continuum. It's the only way it makes sense, right? Either you come over here on the left... to to calvinism and and you make man completely impotent he's a passive agent it's luck of the draw everything man does in the salvation equation is is an involuntary reaction to what god does god does it all or you you go to the other extreme and you overemphasize free will and you leave god out of the equation and then we're saving ourselves and because we save ourselves, we can unsave ourselves. And we can lose it or give it back or all of these things. So both of those make sense, right? I mean, the the retributive view of salvation, according to which a God will save those who do their part, and if you blow it, you're curtains. I mean, we've all heard it. It's the most prevailing view of religion in the world today, that you've got to be good enough. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it, intellectually, right? We like the bad guys to be punished and the good guys to be rewarded. So we like to be able to say that there's no way that guy or that gal could be a believer or be a Christian. Look what they did. So that kind of rationally we resonate with. And I think to the other extreme, you know, to Calvinists it resonates that, no, if God is truly sovereign, which he is, by the way, but in their mind because of that, Mankind has nothing to do with it. You don't have to have a response. You don't believe and then get regenerated. God regenerates you indiscriminately. Some yes, some no. And then the ones He does, then the rest of it sort of falls in line. But it's nothing that they do. Yeah?
1: Yeah, bring
0: up Romans 11, so Yeah. World, and this God, how Lord, and Amen. Romans 11:33. 33. Uh, you know, how unsearchable are God's judgments and His ways past finding out. And I've, t- I've used that verse often. We can't figure it all out. I mean, we're kidding ourselves if we think we can explain to our finite mind's satisfaction things like the virgin birth or the deity of Christ or the hypostatic union or even a global flood, you know. What what happened, and I, I, I keep your question, don't forget it because I am going to come back to you. But what happened over time, and again, this is part of the great deception and Satan getting worse, depravity getting worse and worse, and deception getting worse and worse, is with the Enlightenment, essentially, that was the turning point where man got smarter than God. Until that point, for you know, 5,000 some odd years, man, even if he was not a Christian, never believed the gospel, understood there was a God, we are not Him, there is providence, there is... Uh, Nature there there's a higher power a higher being, and they had a respect for that, and they knew that we were created beings and and so forth. But with with the Enlightenment, and that's when Satan's deceptions really started pouring out, uh, Darwinianism uh, or Darwinism I should say, and eugenics and all of that. Uh, we got smarter than God, and so that's why in the church and in the Christian schools, they began to apply rationalism and intellectualism to scripture and anything that didn't make sense rationally they claimed wasn't true so start with literal six day creation you know darwin said this is billions of years old and we all evolved from a wet rock the bible says it's about 6000 years old and god spoke the world into existence we reject that they say or the global flood there's no way a flood could you know uh, water could f- be over every face of the earth. So it must have just been high tide or a little regional, you know, flash flood. Or uh, Jonah and the great fish, or, uh, you know, you name it. And then you get into the New Testament, you get the virgin birth. Everybody knows a virgin can't have a baby, right? Uh, and so they start rejecting the inerrancy, the, the infallibility, the, the uh, authority, really, of God's word. Um, and that's kind of where we're at today uh, now Calvinists I'm not suggesting they deny these things but what I'm saying is they are uncomfortable admitting that there are some things we just can't comprehend Romans eleven thirty-three. yeah Matthew
1: 7 uh, 15 through 20 Jesus is talking about um, testing false teachers yes. 20, makes the analogy of a good tree can only bear good fruit and a bad tree can only bear bad fruit, uh, being true to their nature. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and vice versa. Sure. Um, can that, is, is that something that uh, feeds into this Calvinist uh, um,
0: so, yeah, the question is uh, Jesus teaching in Matthew seven, fifteen to 20. And we'll close with this. Um, yeah, that verse does come up a lot in the Calvinist discussion, but for different reasons, mainly because they're suggesting that uh, if you're not producing fruit, it proves you didn't persevere, so you were never saved. Again, I want to be clear. Calvinists would never say you lose your salvation. They would just say, you never had it, right? And and how do they know you never had it? Because you didn't bear fruit. But uh, let's look at this verse. So Matthew 7, if you want to turn there, verses 15 and following. Uh, Jesus, let's put it in context. It's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The only thing left after it is his statement about, you better listen to what I'm saying because I'm a wise man. And if you don't, you're like a man who builds his house on the sand and you're going to be destroyed, okay? So this is sort of his climax. It's like as a good preacher, you know, he opens with an attention getter, which is the Beatitudes, where he just completely flips on the, its head their retributive understanding, where they thought it's the mighty that are going to be blessed, and it's the this and the that. And he goes on, no, it's the humble, it's the meek, it's the persecuted, they're the ones that are blessed, and now he's got their attention. Then he goes on through the whole Sermon on the Mount to explain that it's not what you do that matters. You can, you can Outwardly look as good as you want, but it's your heart that has the issue. And so you might say you've never committed adultery, but if you've lusted, you're, you know, you're guilty. And you might say you've never murdered, but if you've hated, you're guilty. And he goes through all of this. He talks about prayer. He talks about, you know, everything kind of contrary from the cultural norm of their day. And then he gets to chapter seven, and he then is basically directly zeroing in on the false prophets of the day, which were the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. And he's saying, beware of them. So first thing to observe is he's talking about false prophets. What do prophets do? Which is what they speak, right? They prophesy, they speak. Uh, And then he says, they come to you in sheep's clothing... But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Now this right there, having gone no further than the first part of the second verse, is where Calvinists go astray and lordship salvationists. Because they say that if you see someone who, out, whose outward behavior is sinful or they're fooling around or doing drugs or having sexual sins or they're living a sinfully an outwardly sinful life, Their fruit, by their fruit, you can tell they're not a Christian. That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying. He explicitly says, outwardly, they're going to look like what? Right. They look just like sheep. How do you know that they're actually wolves? By their what? Fruit. What is fruit? Flip over just for a second. In my Bible, it's a couple of pages. uh, But... uh, Jesus says in Matthew 12, so it's five chapters, but just a couple of pages. He, he makes a similar analogy in Matthew 12:33, and listen to what he says. Matthew 12:33, Make a tree good and its fruit good, or make a tree bad and its fruit bad. A tree is known by its fruit. Sound familiar? What he just said in the Sermon on the Mount. Brood of vipers, how can you being evil, what? Speak good things. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of heart brings forth evil things. But I tell you, for every idle word that men may speak, they will give account of it. What's the fruit? What you say. What you say. Which makes perfect sense. If Jesus was going to tell people how to identify a false prophet, He's going to say, listen to what they're saying. And if what they're saying isn't about grace and about justification by faith but rather dotting their I's and crossing their T's and you sit back here because you don't have nice clothes and you sit up here because you're wealthy or you deserve your name over a building because you put a bunch of money in the plate you know listen to what they're saying that's the fruit it has nothing to do with behavior in fact outwardly they look like sheep I cannot emphasize that enough outwardly they look like sheep Um, and so he, he then summarizes, that that's obviously an extended metaphor, he's using this fruit analogy, but then he, he puts it bluntly, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. What's the will of the Father? Jesus told us in John 6:40 that everybody believe in me, that's what I want, I want you to believe in me, and not everyone who's calling me Lord, Lord, is, is, is doing that. So it's the same thing that he says at the end of his ministry in the Sermon in the Olivet Discourse when he says in the ten virgins, you know, he's some to some he's gonna say, Depart from me, I never knew you. So nobody gets saved simply by crying, Lord, Lord, or by coming to church, or by singing in the choir, or by you know you can act all the part all you want, you can look like a sheep, but until you've believed the gospel, you're not saved. So and as far as the fruits, uh, I I would not say that that he's trying to differentiate here necessarily, absolutely, from unbelievers and believers, because the fact of the matter is, you can have an orange tree that's really an orange tree, but it might be sick, and it might never produce an orange, right? We actually had one, one time. We lived in this house for four years, had been there three years, this tree in the backyard, had no idea it was an orange tree. All of a sudden, one day I came home from, I was teaching full-time at the time, and the kids met me in the driveway. Dad, come look, there's an orange in this tree. Well, it turns out it was just a very unhealthy orange tree, and it produced one orange in four years, but it doesn't mean it wasn't an orange tree, right? Any arborist or someone that knows about that stuff could have sliced off a branch and said, yep, you got an orange tree here. So Christians ought to live healthy, normal, spirit-filled, godly lives. They ought to Walk in the fruit of the Spirit, right? And produce the fruit of the Spirit. But the fact that sometimes we don't doesn't mean we're not a Christian. Any more than that orange tree wasn't really an orange tree. Yeah? So then if a false teacher is revealed by what they speak, is a Calvinist preacher a false teacher? Is a Calvinist preacher a false teacher? I absolutely believe that Calvinists are teaching a false gospel. I absolutely believe that. That's why I titled my book 15 years ago, Getting the Gospel Wrong. I think it's wrong. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I... But they, I don't know if they're saved or not. I assume they are. I, I assume they believe the gospel. It's so simple a child can believe it. Um, but uh, so, but well, I don't really know. I've not actually sat down with someone like MacArthur and asked him to share his testimony. Um, but, you know, I, I would assume, of course, that he's saved. But what they're teaching is not accurate. As I said, I've been saved since I'm six years old. I'm very confident that I trusted in Christ as my Savior. And by the way, contrary to what Calvinists teach, you can know what you believe, right? So, you know, here's the, here's the problem that, that I have with Calvinists on this point. So, a, a young man gets saved by hearing the gospel and believing it. Twenty years later battered and torn by life, and for whatever reasons of his own poor choices or whatever, he's living an ungodly life. And a Calvinist comes along and says, well, you're not saved. And this guy says, well, I I remember hearing the gospel and believing it when I was a young man. Well, you didn't really believe. You didn't really believe. If you really believed, you wouldn't be living like this. So here they are, never having been there, 20 years later, going back in our mind and telling us whether we believed or not. And it creates confusion and doubt and like well i thought i believed you know and uh, but you know i really don't know so no you can know what you believe it's very simple you know, mental concept you either believe something or you don't i don't need someone else to validate what i believe you know you don't go up to someone can you help me determine whether i believe something <laughs> And they can say well if you're unsure about something, I can give you some facts and I can help you think through it. We can talk about it. But at the end of the day, I can't believe for you. You've got to believe. And you know whether you believe something. But, uh, yeah, there's no question that the, and we've just you know gotten through the first point, but as we go through, because of their theological understanding, the way in which they present the gospel is to front load it and back load it with works because in their mind if the works aren't there you know god's not going to produce bad fruit right so that's where this concept comes into play as you suggested with Calvinists. you know if there's bad fruit it's a bad tree well it may be sin is bad it's it's indiscriminately bad it's bad when a believer does it and it's bad when an unbeliever does it um and and that's the whole point of what we talked about last week with romans 7 and you know believers living like the old man when we sin we are not producing the fruit that the new nature should produce we're producing the fruit that the old man does and that's never good so all right well we'll call it uh quits for tonight um we will meet next week but i won't be here so we won't have a live stream and i've got this uh, on our website already and the church website Uh, But I encourage those of you that can or in the area, come out for a good midweek Bible study next week. And then we'll pick up with the next uh, installment of the Calvinism discussion. Uh, uh, So total depravity, you know, we don't believe measures up to scriptural uh, scrutiny. But next time we're going to get into number two on their list, which is unconditional election. And we'll do that in two weeks. All right. Thanks. Have a great uh, rest of the week.
1: Thanks, J.B.